I want to say that it, it's my privilege to be back here behind this sacred desk. And, and before this wonderful congregation of Israelites. And, you know, I don't have a big theological sermon to give tonight. But I just want to start by saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Hallelujah. Folks, just, you know, talking to you as friends. This message of Israel ruined my ministry. It really did. Uh, I was a licensed minister for 10 years with a denomination. And, you know, you're accepted and you've got all the amenities and you got friends and you, you can call on different. You got a superintendent and you got a presbyter you can look to and this and that and all that. You know, you got headquarters, you got literature and everything. And I learned the Israel message and it came by divine revelation. And then someone gave us a little book entitled Isaac's Sons, Tracing Isaac's Sons by Stadsklef. And I read that, and, and it was already within me. And I read that, and I said, wow. This is true. And I gave it to my wife, said, read this. She said, this has got to be true. Well, I'd been in church all my life. But I'd never heard this. But it came to me. I don't want to sound super spiritual, but it came to me in a voice from heaven one day when I was 17 years old. You know, I know that sounds unbelievable, but it did. And then, you know, I got knocked down at college several times over the Israel thing, over racial amalgamation. I mean, the... Professor really beat me down low that time, but I survived. And it, I said, if, since this is true, we have to commit ourselves to preaching this. Well, headquarters called. Well, when Sanhedrin calls, you answer. And I remember verbatim what Reverend N. Cleo Tapp told me in his office on Campbell Avenue in Springfield, Missouri. He said, we no longer have need for your services. That hurt, folks. Both of our families were in that denomination. I mean, every one of us, but it was the greatest deliverance I ever had. Amen. He said, we no longer have, you know, and I've learned over the years to accept rejection. Amen. You just accept it. So I'm no virgin to rejection, <laughs> you know, Whenever I go anywhere, I've told people many times, if you're rejected, that's okay. You just go to the next place, just like Jesus did. Well, anyway, I wish that I had a solid, clear answer as to the future of the Israel remnant in America. Now, I don't want to be pessimistic. I don't want to be depressing. But I don't want to say anything that would offend or insult my friends in Great Britain. And we know 
the wonderful people over there that are believers in what they call B.I. But it appears to me that everything is waning. It's going downhill. And age has caught up with them. And age has caught up with a lot of believers in America. But it's a thrill to see these young people here tonight. Because our children is our message that we are sending to a generation that we will not see. So this church, this assembly is invaluable to the perpetuation of the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Because these pastors already know they've been all over the United States and a lot of those once meetings that were held are no longer there. But God made a covenant, a a unilateral, unalterable, eternal covenant with Abraham and his seed. And it's his responsibility to execute that covenant in the earth. And he will do it. Regardless of how we fail. He knew that we would fail. He knew that we would drop the ball. But he did make the statement to Abraham. He said, I know you and your children. You will teach your children. This message may wane in many ways across America. But I still believe that this message will resurrect. It will be resurrected. Somewhere, somehow, by somebody that's anointed of God to send forth throughout the whole land. We preach in pockets. But someday, somebody, I believe, can I prove it? No, but by faith. God will raise up some company of people where this message will be taught and preached nationally across this country and Canada. When we look at the Old Testament, I've thought about the Old Testament a whole lot. What is in the Old Testament? When we If we could condense the Old Testament down to just a matter of four or five points, we would find, number one, monotheism. There is one God, the the, uh, creator of the universe. He's the God, and then he identifies himself as the God of your fathers in Exodus chapter 3. So that brings in point number two, and that's people. Who are those people? He told Moses, I am that I am. First, he identified himself. Second of all, he said, I am the Lord God of your fathers. Which automatically made him a family. He's the God of a family. And then he identified that family as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he identified himself with a people. And then when he said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he took in the the whole seed line, the whole family, down to us. God has not forsaken us. 
He, he has not forsaken us. And then we come to covenant, point number three. Being that these people belonged to him, he had the right to make a covenant with them. And that covenant bound us together. He made it, folks. We didn't. He's going to keep it. Our God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. And then, being that he had a covenant with this people and he's bound together, he had the obligation and the right to give them a law to live by. Point number four, a law. And he said, if you obey, I'll bless. If you disobey, I'll curse. I mean, what's so hard about that? And then if you put these four points on a circle and start at the top with, with the God of Israel and work your way around this clock, you come back to that same point and that last point would be messianic hope. Messianic hope. Our God became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. Now, I want to start in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 8, there are Six different things that I would like to point out quickly. Now I have made this a kind of a theme in my life. That this message that we have is our greatest burden and our greatest hope. The Israel message is a burden. If you really think about it, if you really join yourself to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel and to Isaiah and to the other prophets, you will say those men bear a burden for their people. Now, I want to stay on theme But I want to say this. God is not interested in saving a religious denomination. We already heard that from Pastor Reed. He's not interested in saving some man's ministry. He's not interested in saving some type of man-made institution. He's interested in saving his people. People. Amen. Now in the book of Ezekiel chapter 8, we see that this chapter has some very, very bad news. Number one, Ezekiel sees this vision and in verse 5, I'm not going to read all the verses, but in verse 1 he's talking to the elders of Judah. And he's reading, reiterating or rebuking even their sin and their iniquity. And in verse number five, we see this image of jealousy, which is none other, no doubt, than Tammuz that is in the temple. In other words, first of all, they profaned the temple in Jerusalem. And if you read these descriptions of these hideous sins, it says, verse 5, Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way towards the north. 
So I lifted up mine eyes the way towards the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entrance. He said, Furthermore unto me, son of man, see what they do. Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. In other words, he, the Lord is forsaking his sanctuary because his sanctuary has been defiled. But turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Number one, from verses five to seven, it's profaning the sanctuary. The sanctuary in Jerusalem was profaned. Number two, in verses 8 through 11, we have a corrupt priesthood. A corrupted priesthood. Now this was during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And what came out of the Babylonian captivity. One of the things that came out of the Babylonian captivity by the evil seed was the Talmud. The evil Talmud. The synagogue came out of that. And several other things came out of that. Mixed blood, etc. And then when we get down to verse number 12 and 13, it says, Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of, the, of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. We can do what we want to do. In other words, they forsook the law. They forsook the word of God that had been given to them on Mount Sinai. And they came up with, and I'm going to say modern, in modern age, they came up with different Bible versions. And brother, when that took place in the 1880s, things began to go downhill real fast. So we've got a corrupt temple. We've got a corrupt priesthood. And we've got corrupt leadership in the church and in academia. And then we see in verse 14, then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Now, how do I apply this today? Uh, it was literally women worshiping this image. But I want to say this without offending any, any of the wonderful women here in this congregation. But the gospel has been feminized. The gospel has been taken by strong women, especially those on television, and perverted the whole gospel so that the men have become sissies. They've become potted plants in church. That's all they are. And some of these prominent women that are on television are now going into denominations such as the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and there's a great argument now. Should we ordain these women because they've got prominence, they've got audience, they've got money, they've got, you know, influence in the religious world? When, and I hate to say, but when Jezebel spirit invades the church, it automatically intimidates the men. Because in the book of Revelation, it says, here's Jezebel, that old prophetess that seduces my servants. In other words, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that women shall rule over you. Because of a feminized gospel that is in the world today. In the evangelical world. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on these, these negative things. But it says in verse number 16, 
And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, the door of the temple between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun. Paul mentioned this. He said they worshiped the creation more than the creator. What Paul was talking about in Romans 1, he was, he was describing Israel's Amen. debauchery. Yes. Not just the heathens, but he was describing Israel's debauchery. But leaving chapter 8, we go... Well, let me say one more thing before we leave chapter 8. Verse 17. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger and to put the branch to their nose. Now what does that mean? As far as I can ascertain, the branch was phallic worship. That's right. What has invaded America other than phallic worship? Yes. And really, some better translations by some scholars means, you've put that idol before my face, and I will not tolerate it. You put it before my nose that I have to smell that. And now America, and we are the leaders worldwide in disseminating filth throughout the world. How the mighty has fallen. But in chapter 9, it tells us this. That the Lord said, he, Ezekiel speaking, He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher, higher gate, which lieth towards the north, every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, and one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's inkhorn by his side, and they went in and stood before the brazen altar, and the glory of God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man, clothed with linen, which had the rider's inkhorn by his side, and the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. The abominations he was referring to was listed in chapter 8. And there is a class of people and I want to be a part of that class of people that sigh and cry for the abominations that have happened in Israel. I want to be marked. I hope that you want to be marked by the man with the inkhorn to put a mark on our forehead. These are people that sigh and cry for the abominations that they see around them. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17, it tells us that he was in Athens, the city of Athens, waiting for his fellow workers to come. And he said his spirit was stirred and grieved within him when he saw the whole city given to idols. My spirit grieves with the Apostle Paul. 
My spirit weeps with the prophet Jeremiah over the abominations of our land. I'm not interested in politics or a man that's running for president or whatever that has the answer. No man has the answer. Only our God has the answer to our problems. Our God and our God alone. But I believe that the Lord is calling somebody. And Lord, help us to be part of that company that sigh and cry over the abominations of our people. And you notice, it was only a minority that would do that. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, his whole life was a, a life of rejection. Even his family rejected him. They threw him in a pit more than once in a slime pit when he exposed their sin. Wish to God that he would raise up a body of people across this country and fill the pulpits of America with men that could cry and weep over the abominations of our people Israel. When we look at the state of Christianity today, I'm reminded of the words of A.W. Tozer. He said, Christianity today has been so weakened that if it were poison, it wouldn't kill you. And if it was medicine, it wouldn't heal you. It's just weak. My heart's cry, really, is for my brothers and sisters in Israel to come back home. Amen. And we can criticize, you know, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and so forth. But there's a lot of Israelites out there. Good-hearted Israelites. And my prayer is, Lord, raise up instruments to reach them. Reach them. Bring them into the fold. We see in the book of Nahum, we see this. He starts out his letter, his book, by saying, The Burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. He starts out saying, see, it's, it's a book of the destruction of the city of Nineveh. But he was burdened over the destruction of even a foreign people. Because the wrath of God is going to be so severe, and it was, if you study the history of the overthrow of Nineveh, Amen. it was terrible, yes. absolutely horrible. Uh, even the Tigris River came into the city, and it, there was so much water, even among the whole city, that the soldiers could not defend the city. He says this, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. Amen. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, in the storm, and the clouds of the dust of his feet. So the Lord is not going to let the wicked get by with their wickedness. And that's a whole story about Nineveh. But when we come down to verse 7, he says, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that put their trust in him. So the Lord has a company of people, even amongst the corruption of this world, that know where their trust is to be placed. 
in him and him alone. Also, we see in the book of Habakkuk, verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk, this word burden is an utterance with desire and passion. We need preachers with passion. We need preachers that have an utterance with desire. Amen. We need preachers and evangelists to bear the burden of the sins of our people and to cry in their ears for repentance. So we see the second prophet beginning his letter with a burden. And he said, this is an interesting book because the prophet is actually complaining to the Lord. Why don't you do something? Have you ever wondered that? I wonder that all the time. Lord, why don't you do something and do it now? And just wipe the wicked off the earth. But the Lord delays. And Habakkuk said, why are you delaying your wrath? But in chapter 2, he said, the vision is not yet. It is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Amen. In other words, judgment is coming. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next year. But when it came out of the mouth of the Almighty, it's coming. And I'm, I don't want to be a preacher of gloom and doom. But one of these days, something big, this is my, not a prophecy, but a prediction. Something big is going to happen. Much bigger than 9-1-1 or 9-11 much bigger. It's going to rock our whole culture to get our attention. It may not be now, but it's coming. He says, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And then we come to the book of Malachi. And Malachi starts out his book by saying, The Burden of the Word of the Lord. Now, these were post-exilic prophets that wanted to see something restored. The temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. The city had been destroyed. The people went into captivity for 70 years. And he is proclaiming, where's the, pri the, the priest? Where's the high priest? Where's the prince? Zerubbabel. And the priest, Joshua. Something needs to be restored, even in our day. And it starts out by a burden. But in his prophecy, and I know I'm skipping through a lot of good material. The hope that he gave us is in chapter 4, verse 2. But unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. In other words, first... That's our burden, but now our hope. Whatever he put forth as judgment or a burden, he always ended it. There's hope. Our God is our hope. He even mentions the struggle between Esau and Jacob in his letter. 
in the first chapter. When we look at the Elijah ministry in the Old Testament and in Luke chapter 1, personified in the ministry of John the Baptist, it was to call the children for that their hearts would be turned back to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers be turned to the children, to the next generation, generations yet unborn. We in the Israel movement, now I've been in a lot of churches in my life and observed a lot of ministries, but there is no group of people And I say this in honesty, there is no group of people in America that exemplifies the Elijah ministry other than those of us who know the Israel message. They are patriotic. Many of them are Christian. They want to return. America to return back to a constitution. They want the moral values of 1950. They want a lot of good things, but they don't know who true Israel is because they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. It's, you know, we want a Christian nation, but the next night, They're raising money for the state of Israeli. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. We are the only people, folks, that have a clear biblical vision for our people. And I say that in all honesty, not to brag on us or put a feather in our hat. But really, we are the only voice in the world that has a biblical answer to every national problem. Because this is our manual, the Holy Bible. We must, it's imperative. And I pray, it's not the Elijah ministry is not the man, it's the message. Some fellow may, you know, put his thumbs in his lapel and say, I'm Elijah. That's, That's not it. What is the message? The message is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Now, are we doing that? On a small scale, yes, we are. On a large scale, no, we are not. And that's what brings up the question. What is the future for our truth? What is, what is, the, what is the prospect of someone preaching this in 2030 or 2040. Naturally, from the natural, it looks rather dim to me on both sides of the ocean. It looks rather dim. But God has made a covenant. His son sealed that covenant. Amen. With his own blood. And he will raise up somebody. That we do not even know. We would not suspect at all. You know the English nonconformist pastor. 
Richard Baxter said this. He said, I preach as never to preach again. I preach as a dying man to dying men. He had a compassion for his generation. God give me and give us a compassion for our generation. You know, we can watch the news and say, that monkey needs to be put out of business. Or that skunk needs to, you know, be kicked out of office. Or that clown needs to be shot. We can take on an antagonistic spirit towards our fellow Israelites. Let's have compassion. Amen. That God would touch their heart just like he touched ours. Charles Spurgeon, before he died, he said this, if there were only one prayer which I might pray before I die, it should be this, Lord, send thy church men filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We need young men filled with the Spirit of God, equipped, trained, not only in a Bible class, but at an altar of contrition. Amen. Fill me with fire. Yep. I have a burden for my people. Yeah. Amen. I weep right along with the prophet Jeremiah. I weep. And I join my heart tonight with Charles Spurgeon. If this be one prayer that I may pray before I die, Lord, send your church men filled with your word, equipped by the Holy Ghost, their tongues of fire, and let the word of God burn in their bones as burning fire shut up in their bones. Amen. And speak and call to your Israel people. Amen. We have a beautiful, absolutely beautiful message. Amen. Now, I'm sure that every one of us have tried to share this message with somebody, family, friends. And if I may ask a question, when you shared this with someone, have you ever heard the response, that's nothing but a cult? Raise your hand. That's nothing but a cult. Ask them, what is the definition of a cult? I'll tell you what their definition is. Anything that doesn't agree with them. That's a cult. Now, Webster says, a cult is to cultivate, to tell. A system of religious worship or spiritual ritual, devotion or attachment an extra or extravagant admiration for a person or principle. But I want to prove to you that this is not a cult. Amen. You know, okay, Jim Jones, was it a cult? Probably so. But here are the characteristics that I have listed as a cult. 
Now, I don't know if anyone has ever made a list other than this or not, but this is my list. Number one, a cult has a sacred book other than the Bible. Amen. Folks, we have no other sacred book that we claim is inspired of the Holy Ghost from cover to cover other than the Holy Bible. Amen. Amen. The Mormons have their book. I think it's the SDA that has the great controversy. We don't have that. We have the Bible, which is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. And the King James Version at that. Number two, it has an elevated earthly leader other than Jesus Christ. We have no other earthly elevated leader. We have God-ordained pastors, evangelists, etc., teachers. But we look up to no man. Jesus is the only one we exalt. That's it. Number three. It has a pet doctrine for salvation. Works for salvation. They've changed the scripture, work out your own salvation, to work for your salvation. No church service, no ritual, no paying tithes doesn't save you. Any work that we may do, it's not for salvation. Number four. A cult has an utter allegiance to a group, control of their money, time, marriage, by the leadership. Now, I know a man, a family, he was a nice man, but he sold his plumbing business. Fortunately, he kept his truck. He sold his plumbing tools And he moved to this state, Kansas City, to be under the leadership of the man that lived in the big white house, he told me. And he, his wife, his grown daughter, and a newborn baby moved into a cardboard box during the winter. And he said, I asked him. I said, what happened when that box got wet? He said, well, I'd run down to the grocery store and try to get new boxes. That's a true story. And he said, everything I did, all the money I brought in, I had to give it to the man in the White House. I said, no, wait a minute. Do I want you as a plumber in my house? He was in a cult. He had a cultish mentality. Finally, he woke up and moved. Number five, a cult has spiritual elitism. Their attitude is, we're God's latest and greatest. And nobody can compete with our spirituality. I could point to churches all across America that would fit that one. I've been in a few of them. Number six, they have secret codes, secret greetings, secret clothing. We don't have that. Number seven. A cult is difficult to leave. They always send somebody after you. They don't want you to spill the beans on them. Tell the truth. They want to keep you. Difficult to leave. Folks, that doesn't, definitely doesn't fit us. (laughs) 
people leave us all the time. <laughs> We'd never see them again. You look, a, you look around and say, well, where's old Joe? He was here last week. He was dancing and jumping and everything else. He's gone. We've had so many people leave us. I mean, they wore the door hinges off. Number eight. After you do leave, if somebody does leave a cult, their mind needs to be deprogrammed. People leaving the Judeo-Christian world coming to us, they need to be deprogrammed. Amen. Yeah. Urgently. <laughs> None of these characteristics fit our, if we want to call it a movement, I guess we're moving. Number nine, it possesses spiritual or secret knowledge only for an exclusive group, Gnosticism. They have secret knowledge. I mean, there's people come to me, and I'm sure you've had it happen to you. Want to tell you something out of the ancient books <laughs> that <laughs> I don't know where these ancient books are at. I've asked, can I, can I buy a copy? We've had some real weirdos among us. <laughs> Anybody agree with that? You see, we must identify ourselves. We have none of the above characteristics. We have one Savior. Amen. Amen. We have one book. Amen. We have one standard, and that's God's law. Amen. We belong to one group, that's the body of Christ. Amen. We have one message, and that is, let the whole house of Israel know that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both the Lord and Christ. Amen. That's our message. That's our one message. When we come to the book of Romans, we have one question. And that question is found in chapter 11 and verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? And we have one answer. God forbid. And then verse 2, he says, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. We have one question. Has God cast away his people? No. Oh, they're, they're uh, amalgamated through all the other people of the earth. That's one theory. Well, the Jews are Israel, they tell us. I mean, even the Phalacia Jews, you know who they are. I don't want to describe them here because I'm on tape. But, uh, you know, really, when you look at these people, the, the Jews as a whole, should I say it? Anybody with a half a brain and one eye knows that those people are not Israel. But yet you hear these fellows on TV that have the alphabet behind their name saying that these are the special people of God and we are second class. We are in the back seat of God's vehicle and those people are in the front seat and we need to support them.
Hath God cast away his people? And Paul says, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. We can say that too. We have one passion. I hope that we can say that we have one passion. Found in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Amen. That's my passion. Amen. I've often said, it's impossible. One hour. I would love to have one hour on national television, prime time, all of America. It'll probably never happen in my lifetime. To cry out and to tell wonderful Israels, Israelites who they are. We have one glory. We glory in one thing and one thing alone. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's my only glory. God forbid that we should glory in anything else. That is our glory. Our banner, folks, sola scriptura. Amen. Our banner, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola Deo gloria, and fideo defensor, def- defense of one religion not defense of religion but defense of one faith well you might say well that's narrow minded that's okay I've been called worse than that but our cry and my cry is found in the book of Matthew Chapter 25. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Well, that cry was made to Israel and Israel alone. Because Israel is the bride. Our Savior is the bridegroom. He wouldn't be calling somebody else's wife. He's calling his own. And I pray that the Lord would raise up young men to proclaim this message. And it dawned on me one day, so I wrote, wrote this little bookmark. If the Anglo-Saxon Western European people are not Israel, why do we have Israel's book, the Bible, the Word of God? Why do we have Israel's covenant? Why do we have Israel's law? Why do we have Israel's birthright? Why do we have Israel's mandate? Why do we have Israel's new land? And why do we have Israel's Savior if we're not Israel? We are the house of Israel. I want to read this in closing. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. I have designated chapter 12 as the Feast of Tabernacle, 
chapter in Isaiah. Why? Because it's recorded that our Lord in John chapter 7 attended the Feast of Tabernacles. And it said, He stood up and He cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For as the Scripture has said, Out of his innermost being, or out of his belly, shall flow rivers of living water. Well, where is that verse verbatim in the Old Testament? The closest one that I find is Isaiah 12. And I want to read this short chapter. And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. You know where the wells of salvation are located? Point to yourself. You're one of the wells of salvation. He says, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. We are the wells of salvation. And with joy... Well, first of all, something has to be put in there before you can get it out. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, because his doings among the people, declare his doings. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So on the John chapter 7, when Christ was at that feast, the Holy One of Israel was in the midst of those people standing right there. The Word made flesh. Now, I did not give you, because I don't have the capability to forecast the future for this congregation or any other Israel believer. But I put my trust in a God of the solar system. He gave us Seven witnesses that Israel shall always exist and that the throne of David will always be in the earth. Sun, moon, stars, heaven, earth, day and night. He's, I think the sun came up this morning and it went down. So the heavens declare the glory of God. What are they declaring? His covenant and His faithfulness to keep that covenant. And the Lord will raise up young men, possibly out of this congregation. Fill them with the Holy Ghost and fire. Equip them with the Word of God. You know, send them like Jeremiah to the pit, P-I-T. That means prophet in training. Because that's where you're really trained. I found out you weren't really equipped in Bible college. When you get out there among the drunks and the ladies of the night and the crooks and the moonshiners of the Carolinas, that's when I learned my lesson. When you're talking to liars... When you're talking to all kinds of depraved people and you don't know whether you're going to live or not when they threaten you with a 12-gauge shotgun, you keep on preaching. That's what I did. I was too stupid to quit. 
I was out to win the world for Christ. The man sent me a message by his son. If you step your foot on my property again, I'll blow your head off with my 12-gauge shotgun. Well, that was good. That was PIT, profit and training. They didn't tell me that in Bible college. We need men. We need mothers in Israel. Did Savannah or Susanna Wesley, did she know the potential of those two little boys when they were around her knees? Probably not. But they shook the world. God help us. Lord, we commit it to you. We commit this message and we commit ourselves to you and trust in your covenant-keeping power. In Christ's name, amen.